This week on the Backtable Podcast. It varies a lot on the size of the nodule. For a, a two to three centimeter nodule, you're looking at probably 15 to 20, 25 minutes. For a bigger nodule that's say six centimeters, you're looking at probably 45 minutes, maybe an hour. Definitely there's a, a learning curve with this. The, the first couple you do are going to be much slower. And I found that with myself too. The first few that I did uh, definitely took a lot longer trying to be very meticulous and get the whole thing ablated very uh, carefully. As you go on, you can kind of use a little bit higher wattage, move a little bit faster through the nodule and get a little, little faster with your times. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. Hey, everybody, really exciting news. Our listeners asked and we have answered. We now have CME available. You can get AMA Category 1 CME for listening to Backtable and then filling out a reflection. You can find the CME links on episode pages at backtable.com, or you can also find the CME links in the show notes. It's a small cost for the credit, much less than you would spend at a conference, and it helps support the show. Powered by CMEFI, using AI technology to bring the right education to the right place at the right time. You can do this in just a few minutes. If you're already listening to Backtable, might as well get a CME credit for it. Again, guys, this helps support the show and allows us to keep bringing you great content. Now, on with the episode. This is Ali Behetti coming to you from Tacoma, Washington, as your guest host this week. I'm very excited to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Tim Huber from the Daughter Institute at OHSU, to talk about thyroid ablation. Welcome, Tim. Thanks, Ali. To start, could you tell me a little bit about the residency program at OHSU? Yes. Yeah, so we have a great residency program here. Um, we offer all the different pathways. So we have IR integrated, IR independent, and ESIR. I think the big strengths of our program are kind of clinical and research, um, especially, you know, we do the full gamut of bread and butter IR, including uh, things like PAD, um, aortic, venous work. Uh, we do IO. We're even doing some newer things like prostate embolization, genicular artery embolization, and obviously thyroid RFA. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, now onto our topic for today, thyroid ablation. So tell me a little bit about your thyroid ablation practice. When did you start building up and what kind of volume are you seeing now? Yeah. So I learned the technique from Awan Park at UVA when I was doing my fellowship with you and uh, came out to OHSU in 2019 to start up the, uh, the program out here. I met with some folks from the thyroid and parathyroid clinic when I was interviewing. They were very excited to bring this program out to OHSU. So I started this as a collaboration with a couple surgeons and a couple endocrinologists out here. Um, and it's been a really grow, big success with all of us working together to grow this thing. So I started in 2019, um, kind of right before COVID uh, took off, getting approval for the generator, kind of getting everybody um, up to speed on what the technique is and how to do follow-up, how to get people referred to us. And uh, it's been really taking off since then. We've treated about 50 patients uh, in the past uh, 16 months and a really great success so far. Okay. All right. Uh, so for the uninit uninitiated, who've never really heard of thyroid ablation before. What are the patients that you do this on? What are the indications for thyroid ablation? Great question. So they're always expanding and we're always looking for new uh, patient populations, but the best way to get started with this is gonna be benign symptomatic thyroid nodules. So we're working on some US-based guidelines to kind of help people with indications, but generally most practices are using the ETA, the European Thyroid Association guidelines, or the KSIR, Korean Society of IR guidelines. And uh, basically nodules over two centimeters are what recommended to treat. Under two centimeters, it's rare for them to be symptomatic. And so once they get to be that size, they can cause compressive symptoms. Things like a difficulty swallowing, pressure on the airway, 
uh, or just pain or pressure kind of within the neck. Do you treat patients who have cosmetic concerns about lumpy, bumpy thyroids too? It's a good question. Typically, once they get to be uh, over two centimeters, in most people, they're going to be somewhat visible and there's going to be some sort of cosmetic defect. Uh, so far, I haven't had any patients who have solely cosmetic concerns. It's always mm -hmm. been cosmetic concerns plus symptoms, but you can do this for cosmetic concerns as well. Then talk to me a little bit about your practice in treating patients who have functional nodules. Yeah, so this is definitely a tougher area to treat. So you can use this technique to treat functional nodules as well. Standard uh, is obviously surgery or uh, radioactive iodine treatments, but there are a lot of patients that don't want to have surgery or they don't uh, want to isolate for the, the period of time that you need to with radioactive iodine or they have small kids at home or it's just not feasible. So RFA is a good option for, for people who kind of don't want those other two options. It's a little bit trickier in that you have to get a more complete ablation of the nodule. You can't leave as much residual tissue behind to get them back to euthyroid state. So you really want to shoot for like a 70 to 80% volume reduction to, to get a good result for those patients. So a little more challenging, not something maybe to take on as your first case, mm -hmm. but definitely something that can be treated. Have you treated any patients uh, who have a thyroid malignancy? Yeah. So we have treated one patient so far with a recurrent uh, PTC. He was a candidate who uh, basically had had multiple prior neck dissections and some radioactive iodine treatments before, and was at a point where we were kind of considering um, repeat neck dissection versus starting systemic options for him to locally control uh, the nodules. So he had basically two nodes, uh, they're metastatic, kind of near the carotid, one near the trachea. And so we use this as a, a way to slow down that growth and prevent local invasion. It can also be used for uh, papillary microcarcinoma. And uh, it's a little bit of a newer area. There are a few trials mm -hmm. that are going to be starting up pretty soon, kind of Mayo and Sloan Kettering and a few other centers are going to be kicking off uh, pretty soon here. But that's an uh, area of active ongoing research. I see. Okay. So obviously not standard of care for treatment uh, of malignant nodules, but definitely something that might be in the future. Yeah. The data out of Italy and uh, Korea are really promising. So we think that this will be uh, pretty successful in the U.S. as it rolls out. What's your workup for a patient who comes to you for a thyroid ablation? Great question. So we start off obviously with an ultrasound of the thyroid and of the neck to assess just the nodule composition, the vascularity, the size, and also to look for any enlarged lymph nodes in the neck that might be kind of a tip off. There could be something more than just a simple benign nodule. Everybody needs to have, we recommend two benign FNAs before we do RFA. And that's in line with the KSIR and, and ETA guidelines. There are some cases where the guidelines recommend uh, a single biopsy being sufficient if it's a very classically benign appearing nodule. But in most cases, uh, just to be conservative, we're recommending two prior to treatment. We uh, do a single FNA prior to RFA for uh, functional nodules, though. That's the one kind of care area where you can just do a single for uh, autonomously functioning nodules. Okay. So they get their FNA, uh, they get their thyroid ultrasound. Do you do any lab work before you do a thyroid ablation? Yep. So we check TSH in everybody. Sometimes we'll add in T3 and T4. Um, it just depends on if they're functional or non-functional. For the non-functional folks, typically just a TSH is sufficient. There's a little bit of debate back and forth throughout thyroglobulin. Is that necessary um, or uh, TPO antibodies, things like that. And generally, most people aren't doing any of those additional lab tests. So typically, TSH is sufficient for most people. Is there anything that you would see on your patient workup that would give you pause for uh, doing the procedure? Um, what I'm getting at? thyroid location or giant patient with a BMI over 100, uh, anything that has given you pause in, in the series that you've done so far? Yeah. So patient selection, like most things in IR, is really important. I would say that the size of the nodule is one of the biggest things that's going to make your life easier or hard. And so, you know, two or three centimeter nodules are pretty easy to treat. 
four and five centimeters get more challenging. Six, seven, eight centimeter nodules are a lot tougher. Mm -hmm. And generally over seven or eight, I think surgery is probably your way to go. That being said, uh, people are treating much larger nodules. In the U.S., we're seeing a larger volume of disease being referred in. So definitely bigger nodules or multinodular coiter. And that's been treated with RFA, but it's a bit more challenging. Usually requires more treatment sessions to get a good result. So bigger nodules are tougher. Um, nodules that go below the sternum, kind of subclavicular or substernal nodules can be tough. If you can't see the whole nodule, you can't ablate safely that lower margin. So that can be a little bit challenging. Again, you can kind of stage your procedure and hopefully get that lower portion at a future procedure. But again, multiple procedures. And then any kind of intermediate grade pathology on the FNA. So Bethesda three or four categories are a little bit more um, indeterminate right now. We're doing some studies to figure out if those nodules are safe to treat. But right now, the thinking is probably stick with Bethesda two, the definitely benign nodules. Anything in the patient history that would modify your approach? For example, pregnancy or um, they have pacemakers? Yeah. So there are two contraindications. Well, One's absolute, one sort of relative contraindication to the RFA system. So pregnancy is an absolute contraindication. No one's tested it in pregnant patients, but no one's going to. And so we recommend not treating pregnant patients with the system. Pacemakers, you have to do some adjustments to where you place the electrode, the electrode grounding pads. So typically we have grounding pads on the outside of the thighs. For people with pacemakers, you can do a modified placement and put them up on the shoulders on the back. And so the, the rep, they can sort of walk you through the protocol there. And there are a few different protocols that are online um, that they've done before that have been successful. You have to decrease the wattage. It's a little bit more of a hassle, but it can be done. And then how about a uh, location of the thyroid nodule? You've already kind of spoken about the ones that go below the sternum, but how about the just deep, deep nodules? Are you allowed to ablate those? So really, you shouldn't be ablating anything that you can't see. So as long as you can see the nodule, um, or at least the portion of the nodule that you're ablating, that's fine. But if there's a portion of the nodule that's just too deep for your ultrasound unit to kind of register clearly or to see the tip of your electrode well, then I would stay away from that. Uh, okay. But that's really the only sort of limit. Okay. Could you touch a little bit on the danger triangle? I remember Dr. Park always talking about that when he talked about thyroid ablations. Yeah. So there's a term that they throw around in the thyroid literature that you'll see if you start reading the papers and they call the danger triangle. And basically it's where the recurrent laryngeal nerve lives. And basically it's a triangle that's bordered by the thyroid gland and the trachea. And so we know that that's anatomically where the recurrent laryngeal nerve is going to be. And that's basically the big concern during most thyroid surgeries that you ding the recurrent laryngeal nerve and paralyze the vocal cord. So when we do the uh, technique that we recommend, it's this trans approach that we talk about. And that's kind of going from a medial to a lateral approach with your electrode. It makes it really, really hard, I find, to direct the tip of my electrode back into that danger triangle. Mm. So when Dr. Beck was developing this in Korea, he sort of thought of that and kind of developed it in this this way to prevent damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. I see. I see. That kind of brings us to the procedure. So just walk me through how you would do your standard run-of-the-mill thyroid ablation. Yeah. So we do these all in our outpatient IR suite uh, here at OHSU. So we have a, a nice big room to put the patients in. They're laid out on our angio table, which is definitely overkill for this procedure, but it's very nice for us. Um, we get them positioned and you want the neck pretty extended so you can really get the nodule into a good position to visualize the whole nodule. And then I always scan the patient to make sure we're in a good spot. Uh, then we prep everything out. Uh, we numb the neck, you know, numbing the skin, numbing down at the thyroid capsule. And that's with 1% lidocaine. And uh, I find that really uh, lidocaine is sufficient for most patients to get them uh, completely basically numb and more or less pain-free during the procedure. You don't need to do moderate sedation or anything more heavy. Then we go in with the electrode again in that 
transismic approach, kind of medial to lateral in a transverse plane. And you really want to work basically ablating deep to superficial because as you start ablating the nodule, you're going to create this echogenic cloud of, of little micro bubbles around the tip of your uh, electrode, and it's going to gas out everything posterior. So mm -hmm. if you work deep to superficial, you'll be able to kind of see what you're doing the whole time. And basically you just fan your electrode up, ablating that whole segment of the, the nodule. And then just work on another segment, kind of go up, down, um, with your ultrasound unit and find another place to start ablating and keep it going until the whole thing's covered. Okay. How big are these electrodes? Good question. So most people are familiar with, you know, the really long electrodes that we use for kidney, bio, kidney ablations or, uh, or liver ablations. These are much shorter. They're specially designed to be a little bit more friendly for the head and neck and a little more user-friendly. So they have a nice grippy handle that's uh, a little bit shorter than the uh, standard RFA electrode. And then the shaft is shorter as well. So it's more like a pencil size or a little bit longer than a pencil. So much more maneuverable, uh, allows for a lot more fine control. Okay. So then in, in terms of uh, equipment purchases, your capital equipment purchase is the RFA generator and then a, a probe for each patient, right? That's negotiable, um, as it always is with these kinds of ablation systems. So the newer model that most practices are going with now is essentially rolling the cost of the generator into the volume purchase with your electrodes. I'd mm -hmm. say that's the most common thing that I've heard about across the country. So you can choose to buy the generator upfront and kind of reduce your probe cost that way, or kind of roll that in on a per probe cost, pay a little bit more per electrode. But then if you're not using them, you know, you can basically give everything back and not have purchased that piece of equipment. Oh, that's great. You know, it gives people a chance to try it, try it before they buy it, right? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, one other thing you've mentioned to me before about the transisthmic approach with these probes is just that going transisthmic allows the probe to really um, have a place to stay and it, it, it prevents it from moving around a bunch in the thyroid. Is that, have you found that that's another benefit of going transisthmic as opposed to lateral to medial? Yeah. So a lot of patients and even providers kind of worry that, you know, the thyroid being so superficial in the neck and not having much tissue to kind of anchor it, what's going to happen when the patient breathes or, or coughs or, or swallows? Um, how are you going to secure the probe as you're doing this ablation? And the transistomic approach really gives you more tissue at that oblique angle to kind of hold everything in place. And I found really security of the probe is not an issue. It works just fine. And even when patients are talking or, or swallowing or breathing, that electrode's not going anywhere. What's your endpoint for treating a certain area? Like, do you do 30 seconds at each site or something like that? What I found from doing a little bit of back table experimenting um, is that the echogenic appearance of uh, echogenic changes that you'll see on ultrasound correspond really well to the ablation zone. So as you're doing your ablation, you really want to see those echogenic changes within the thyroid nodule. And you'll kind of know from that what's been ablated. And so it's uh, this sort of moving shot technique or pullback technique. So you go in, you ablate and slowly kind of pull back along a track, almost like a track ablation, uh, mm -hmm. if you're familiar with that. And as you're doing that, you'll see changes in the nodule and you want to see basically those same changes throughout the entire nodule. Okay. How long does the whole procedure take? It varies a lot on the size of the nodule. For a, a two to three centimeter nodule, you're looking at probably 15 to 20, 25 minutes. For a bigger mm -hmm. nodule that's say six centimeters, you're looking at probably 45 minutes, maybe an hour. I see. Yeah. You get faster the more you do it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a, a learning curve with this. The, the first couple you do are going to be much slower. And I found that with myself too. The first few that I did uh, definitely took a lot longer trying to be very meticulous and get the whole thing ablated very uh, okay. carefully. As you go on, you can kind of use a little bit higher wattage, move a little bit faster through the nodule and get a little, little faster with your times. So is it a big deal if you ablate some normal thyroid tissue too? In general, no. There's usually not a huge impact to the thyroid function with this procedure. 
it's very difficult to um, really ablate uh, too much into the thyroid, uh, normal thyroid tissue. There's usually enough peritumoral vascularity that'll kind of buffer a little bit of the heat uh, in the, the ablation zone kind of outside the nodule. So I've really found very minimal impact on the normal thyroid tissue in my follow-ups. Okay. What kind of feedback do you elicit from your patients during the procedure to let you know that you could be in trouble? So we give all of our patients, uh, it's basically like a little squeezy, almost like a dog toy um, that they can squeeze during the procedure if anything's painful or, or hurting and they want to get our attention. So it just gets us uh, to pay attention real quick and turn off the yeah. generator and check in with them. But during the procedure, I will intermittently uh, pause and kind of check in, see how they're doing in terms of pain, comfort, and just check their voice and make sure there aren't any voice changes. I see. You can sometimes see immediate voice changes with this ablation. So you can see immediate voice changes if you do start to ablate in the danger triangle. Typically, you'll know that you are kind of in a sketchy area and that happens and you'll check mm -hmm. in with your patient. Mm -hmm. It's pretty uncommon for you to be totally surprised by a voice change. I see. There are some rescue techniques of trying to inject um, some chilled D5 or saline into the danger triangle uh, that have been described to try to sort of rescue the recurrent pharyngeal nerve and chill mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. That can be effective, but you have to have that kind of ready to go on hand so it's not real feasible sure. for most people. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we kind of talked about what you, what you don't want to hit and what you do want to hit. <laughs> and then, uh, in terms of skin burns, has that, has that been an issue with these probes at all? I haven't found it to be an issue. The, the shaft of the probe is cooled with chilled saline that prevents char and also helps prevent skin burns. You want to keep the electrode off as you're puncturing the skin. Um, and they have a diamond cut tip, so they go into the skin really easily, no incision needed. But uh, electros off as you enter. And if, if you do that, really, there's minimal chance of skin burning. Okay. So in the US, the only system available is the RF monopolar system, correct? Correct. There are about three companies offering different systems, but they're all monopolar right now okay. in the US. They have bipolar in, uh, in Korea, but we don't have that here yet. Classic Korea, always ahead <laughs> of us for thyroids. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about post-op care. So what do you do once you get the patient off the table? Yeah, so we always check the voice. It's the first thing we do, um, talk to the patient, see how they're doing. Then they go to our recovery area for about an hour post-procedure. We're checking to make sure their voice hasn't changed, they're swallowing okay, breathing okay, uh, able to eat, their pain's well-controlled. And in general, uh, most patients do okay, a little sore, but uh, nothing too severe. We uh, give them ice packs for the neck, give them some ibuprofen, and recommend that pretty much um, for pain control after the procedure for the first couple of days. Mm -hmm. I warn them that for about three to five days after the procedure, they'll have some soreness in the neck and uh, kind of like a bad strep throat, usually nothing worse than that. If they're having a lot of swelling, bruising, or kind of uh, rapidly evolving hematoma, they should call us and go to the ER to get checked out pretty quickly. But we have not had a, a case of that uh, sort of delayed hematoma uh, here. Do most of the complications you see kind of rear their head within an hour? In general, most things are going to be pretty immediate. Um, the things that are going to happen later are going to be a little more easily manageable over the phone, uh, mm -hmm. if you will. You know, some patients will have more pronounced swelling and even kind of like a post-embolization or post-ablation syndrome of kind of like malaise and feeling kind of run down. And some steroid taper can really help with those symptoms if you get to that situation. I've discussed that with one patient, but she didn't want to do that and ended up resolving the next day and feeling better. So sounds like it's a want to knock on wood here, but sounds like it doesn't have a ton of complications associated with it. That's great. So then tell me about your clinical follow-up. Yeah, so we're uh, probably a little more aggressive um, than maybe totally necessary, but we basically see patients back at one month and then every three months for the first year. And at those follow-ups, we're checking ultrasound each time to check the nodule size and check for the, the shrinkage in the volume. We're also checking TSH at the one-month visit. And then for non-functional benign nodules, we just check it 
once, if it's normal, uh, we kind of hold off until the one year mark and we check it again there. For the functional nodules, I'll keep checking TSH until it's basically stabilized and normalized, hopefully at a new euthyroid state. How long does it usually take for the hyperfunctioning nodules to get them to a euthyroid state? So I've done about three patients so far. And in my practice, I've found that it takes about three months and they're back to euthyroid state. It can take a little oh. bit longer for their symptoms to totally normalize. But in general, I find that it's fairly quick. Yeah, that's, I was thinking a year. That's great. Uh, and then I know you have the luxury of being able to do the follow-up ultrasounds yourself, but in a lot of practices, the diagnostic folks are going to be reading the follow-up ultrasounds. And I imagine these things look pretty scary post-ablation, like many things post-ablation. So can you just talk a little bit about what they look like on the follow-up and how to get them not to say it's like a Tyrads 5 lesion? Yeah. So that's one of the big things you have to worry about. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I do a lot of the follow-ups in my own clinic. I do get the three-month and the one-year ultrasounds uh, done in our radiology department here just for some objectivity to make sure I'm not totally making up numbers. <laughs> but you do want to make sure that whoever's doing the ultrasounds knows what you're doing and what the appearance should be after this procedure. If you lose a patient to follow up and they go off into in, some other city and get scanned, it's very easy for someone to say, hey, this is hypoechoic, this looks scary, there's you know maybe areas of calcification, this looks like a Tyrads 5, you know, this is cancer, it needs to come out now. And if they biopsy it after ablation, it's going to come back with all kinds of weird pathology and necrosis and strange things that are going to look really scary. So it'll get right out of something bad and they're going to get surgery most likely. So you want to make sure they're getting uh, ultrasounds by people who know what's going on and that they're able to uh, basically give you a decent read. So whether that's just informing your uh, local department of, hey, I did this ablation, it's going to look a little funky, just FYI, or doing it yourself. I think either one's acceptable. How long does it look all crazy for? So that's a good question. It can look a little bit funky, uh, even up to a year. Um, you know, it usually the margin cleans up by about three to six months and it's looking a little bit more like a normal ablation zone, but it'll look hypoechoic um, and obviously shrinking down up to a year plus. So Tim, how do you gauge outcomes from this procedure? Yeah, so the papers that have been published on this typically report the volume reduction ratio. So how much the nodule shrunk by they also look at the symptomatic score and the cosmetic score. So the symptom score is super subjective. It's basically like a zero to 10 scale of how bothersome the symptoms are for the patient. It's not the most uh, scientific thing in the world, but at least it gives you some sense of how bothered the patient was by their symptoms pre-procedure and then kind of where they are afterwards. Mm -hmm. In general, we're finding that the symptoms improve very quickly. Um, usually by the three month mark, three to six month mark, people have a pretty significant reduction in their symptoms. And then the cosmetic grade is basically a one to four scale. Four is a visible neck bulge. Three is uh, visible if they swallow. Two is palpable and one is not visible. So those are three different metrics that we're using just because they've been used uh, in other papers to kind of mirror that. How much volume reduction is considered successful? Yeah, so a lot of papers talk about 50% as being kind of technical success. Uh, but I find that if you want to really reduce the size of the nodule and have it be durable, at least for, you know, five plus years, you really want to shoot for something higher than that, more like 70 to 80% at a year. That's kind of what we do here. What pushes you to uh, retreat a patient? So incomplete, you know, symptom resolution. If they're getting to sort of the six or nine month mark and they're still saying, yeah, you know, I was at an eight and now I'm down to a five, but I'm still kind of feeling this sensation of something in my throat or, or occasional um, dysphagia, you know, and there's still some residual tissue there that's not totally ablated. I'll go back and, and try to re-ablate and touch that up. Typically, patients will have a pretty significant um, improvement, even with a modest reduction in size, like 50%. 
And there could be some tissue that's viable, but if their symptoms improve, I usually just leave it alone, kind of let yeah. the patient's symptoms drive it mostly. Have you treated any patients with multinodular goiter? So we have. It's uh, definitely a little more controversial, especially in the Korean and the Italian literature. They're definitely more challenging patients, um, and they often have bilateral nodules, and which can present some challenges. I don't uh, treat both sides at the same time, just uh, with that theoretical risk of damaging the laryngeal nerve uh, on both sides and causing bilateral vocal cord paralysis. I just stick to one side at a time, and I'll kind of target the dominant nodule and any adjacent nodules. Okay. Well, that's pretty much all the questions I had about the procedure itself and all the clinical stuff about it. I'd like to talk a little bit more about how, um, for example, how a private practice radiologist could make this a part of their practice. So starting off with the big the big thing that drives us is reimbursements. So do any insurance companies in the U.S. cover it right now? So it's a great question. Everyone wants to know that. The answer is it's complicated. They don't cover it easily, by and large. Uh, a few of them are, have come around and are working with us a little more carefully, uh, a little more closely, and we're having some success there. So the way we do it here is that I submit everything to insurance before the procedure and work through the appeals process on the front end. And in general, I'm able to get approval for the procedures, um, usually with one or two rounds of appeals. Mm. Usually uh, it's denied as investigational, but after submitting documentation, references, they'll usually accept that it's legitimate. Other practices have taken more of a cash-only uh, self-pay model. And I'd say that's probably the majority of places are doing that around the country. It just limits how many patients can have access to the procedure. Sure, and I kind of sure. wanted to keep it as open to as many people as we could here. So that's why yeah. I opted for the insurance, which has been successful, but a lot of work on my end, to be honest. Oh, I bet. <laughs> Nobody likes to talk to those insurance companies about anything. <laughs> can you give me kind of like a market? If you feel comfortable, can you give me a range of kind of what people are charging for self-pay out you've heard out in the community? Yeah. So I can kind of give you a, a rough kind of low, high. I've heard low, uh, low end being around three and high end being, you know, 10 or 12. Okay. Yeah. So definitely a huge uh, range depending on the market. Sure. Sure. And then how do you get these patients? What's your, what's your major source of referrals? So I've been super lucky here in partnering with the Thyroid Parathyroid Clinic because they had a whole slew of patients who basically needed something done for their thyroid nodules and didn't want to have surgery. And so they were just following them. And so when I started, we had a whole backlog of patients ready to treat. That's not common for most yeah, people. That sounds so, very lucky. <laughs> it was. It was very fortunate. And uh, since we got things going, the referrals kind of just rolled in. That being said, what I hear from people around the country is that once they publicize that they have the system in place or they're going to be getting RFA at their practice, mm -hmm. patients find them very quickly and their, um, their slots fill up very quickly. So the patients who uh, want to have this are very motivated and they're looking for providers that will uh, do the procedure. And so they have support groups. They're getting the word out on their own and they'll find you. Oh, yeah. I bet. I wonder if there's a sub thread on Reddit about you somewhere that's driving a bunch of your patient referrals. That's maybe. very possible. Maybe, maybe, maybe Facebook. I don't know. We'll see. I haven't looked <laughs> deep enough to find out. <laughs> Have you done any direct to patient marketing? We haven't had to yet. We've talked about it, but so far we've had enough uh, referrals coming in from around the state and around the area with uh, basically just sort of grand rounds, lectures, and just reaching out to different large practices in the area. So when you go out and speak to these practices, what's the reception that you get? Are they hesitant to refer? Do they feel like there's a role? Yeah, it's been mixed. Uh, there are definitely those endocrinologists and surgeons who don't buy it yet and want to see more data and aren't really so sold on it. 
I will say that uh, compared to the East Coast, I feel like uh, in Oregon, at least, people seem to be a bit more open-minded or at least open to other alternative options, which has, I think, also helped our referrals. But we've uh, gotten a decent number of referrals from endocrinologists and ENTs that uh, we've never actually interacted with, but mm. patients want it and have sought them out to get referrals to us. So I am finding that as we do this procedure and get our data out there more and more, people are definitely coming around and referring more and more patients to us. And then can you give me a little bit of information about future directions of thyroid ablation? Like if, if I wanted to start doing this next month in my OBL, what kind of resources should I look into? So a uh, two-part question. I'll start with the, um, the future directions part first. Cancer is definitely the next area of growth for this technology, but there are a few other areas as well, like uh, parathyroid adenomas or uh, parotid tumors are also showing some early promise in being able to treat with RFA. Um, and how do you get started with this? A lot of resources out there. There's a ton of papers from Italy and Korea describing the technique, describing their outcomes uh, with benign disease and even some malignancy. If you want more U.S.-based literature, there's a growing amount of literature from U.S.-based populations, which is great. Um, so expect more and more papers to come out in the next couple of years on outcomes in the U.S. You can look in this uh, last August seminars in IR for a how-to paper from me and Dr. Park. Um, and there'll be an upcoming TVIR edition dedicated to thyroid ablation coming out hopefully next year. Are there any courses around the country that a provider can go to to learn this? Yeah, so there are actually a lot of hands-on courses being offered around the country, more on the East Coast. Uh, we were getting one set up here at OHSU kind of in the middle of COVID, but with the recent round of restrictions, we haven't been able to go live just yet, but we're hoping to start offering some hands-on training here as well. Great. Well, um, Tim, thanks for coming on the show. I've learned a lot today, just getting our feet wet with this whole thyroid ablation, but I think it's going to be something amazing that IRs can offer, you know, in the near future on a large scale. And thank you for being a thought leader in this area. Thanks for having me on the show. This has been great. I'm glad to get the word out to more people and hopefully we can support more people to get this started in their practices. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Brian Hartley. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Zubi Syed. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson and Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang and newsletter by Lauren Fang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.